All right, as promised at the top of the show and on, uh, and I think, last week's program as well, we at this point are going to go to uh, Radio Parallax's go-to guy when it comes to matters concerning water in California and also fish in California, and those two are definitely related. Activist Dan Bacher. Without any further ado, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dan. Um, good to talk to you today. I got a lot to talk about. Let's well, let's get into it. I understand there's some bills that are uh, that are of concern to us and to you. Let's what what's going on? A bill to ban offshore drilling in state waters. Senate Bill nine five three passed out of the Senate Committee on Natural Resources and Water on April twenty sixth, and this bill was authored by. Senator Dave Min, he's a Democrat from Irvine. It's currently in the suspense file, and the outcome will be de- determined at the hearing of the Senate Committee on Appropriations on May 19th. So it, it, it is, it is, it's in committee in the Senate? It's in the suspense file right now, but it, it'll be determined where it's going to go on May 19th in the Senate Committee on Appropriations. And this would do two things. Number one, it would ban offshore drilling in state waters. Those are waters that are three miles and less from shore. At the three-mile line, the federal waters begin. It would also cease oil production at the three remaining platforms that are operating off the coast of California by 2024. At the moment, there are three within the three-mile limit? Yes. And this legislation comes in the wake of the big oil spill that leaked nearly 25,000 gallons of crude oil from a pipeline off the coast of Huntington Beach last October. Right. And this spill was the largest pipeline rupture in California waters since the destructive 2015 spill at Refugio Beach on the Santa Barbara County coast. And this bill was introduced in February. Some administration continues to issue new and reworked oil drilling permits in state waters. I got to ask, how many how many are in that, in federal waters, I guess out, out to the 12-mile limit, 3 to 12 miles? There's 150 offshore drilling permits that have been approved by California oil and gas regulators since January 1st, 2019. Of those permits, five were for new wells and the rest for reworking existing wells. And this is according to an analysis of permits through October 1st, 2021 and posted at www.newsome.com wellwatch.org by Consumer Watchdog and Frack Tracker Alliance. They're two great groups that monitor these uh, oil wells in California. Well, give us an estimate. Uh, In the wake of the war in Ukraine and a reduction of oil supplies coming out of that part of the world, there apparently, uh, there seems to be, what I gather is a, a new look at at oil here in America, and although it's not quite drill, baby, drill, it seems like the, the thinking in general is going the opposite way. Maybe, maybe we should do more drilling. Uh, yeah, and it's been going that way since Biden got into office. Ouch. Now, these are the facts about oil and gas 
drilling in the United States okay. under the Biden administration. There is this I've, I've seen again and again this very false claim by Republicans, okay, on mainstream and some alternative media that the Biden administration is slowing um, down the oil and gas drilling and that it's being supported by environmentalists um, that want to get rid of oil and gas drilling and that the U.S. needs to step up to the plate and drill more wells and get more crude oil out of the ground. Okay, this is the actual data that I've compiled in several articles. First, U.S. oil production is forecasted to average 12.4 million barrels of crude oil per day in 2023, surpassing the record high set in 2019 under Trump. That's um, from the National Energy Information uh, Agency. So that's the forecast. Now, here's the actual number two. The, the Biden administration so far has approved 3,557 oil drilling permits on public lands in, in uh, his first year in office. That, that surpasses the 2,658 permits approved in Trump's first year. This is according to an analysis of statistics by the Center for Biological Diversity. Would this mostly be in the Gulf of Mexico? It's on public lands. Oh, oh, okay. Dry land and land and water. Okay, okay. Yes. Okay. And three, on April 15th, the U.S. Bureau of Land Management announced that it will resume oil and gas leasing on public lands. Okay, so in reality, under the Biden administration, oil and gas drilling has already expanded. Wow, that's, that's bad news. Yeah, it's real bad news. And there's this false narrative that the Biden administration is more environmentally friendly but it's it's really not true if you look at the, the the actual data. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Is California going to make much difference in in the grand scheme of things? So we go back to California, and so there's a bill in the Senate right now to basically ban all drilling in state waters. But you know, legislature can't do anything about federal waters, but it can man offshore drilling in state waters, and secondly, to decommission the three remaining offshore rigs. The problem here is that the majority of bills that are opposed by the oil industry are shelved, or in the case of the fracking bill back in 2014, they're gutted and amended by the Western States Petroleum, Chevron, and the California Independent Petroleum Association. So this bill faces a strong uphill battle by opponents to either stop the bill or gut and amend it. 
as the Western States Petroleum Association has gone on record to say that it would like to do. Western States Petroleum Association is the largest and most powerful corporate lobbying group in Sacramento. And over the past three years, it spent over $17.5 million lobbying the California legislature and other state officials. And in the first quarter of this year, WISPA, as its acronym is, um, has continued its lobbying spending spree, and it dumped $952,366 into lobbying California officials in the first quarter. And Chevron spent even more money, $1,116,000 during the quarter. And the total that was spent on lobbying just in the first quarter of 2022 was $6,000,000. And the largest spender this time was Sempra Energy Affiliates, loan SoCal Gas and the San Diego Gas and Electric Company, and they moved into first place with $1,961,000 in expenses in just three months. So they're going to really put pressure to stop this bill. So it needs all the support it can get. Okay, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but what do you think the odds are they're going to actually pass this bill? Other people may be more optimistic. I think it's either going to get shelved or gutted and amended, but I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. All right. One thing that's important is that this is just the lobbying money that I'm talking about. That's just a fraction of the total money that they spend. And big oil and WISPA and big, um, big gas, they wield their power in eight different ways that um, my analysis provides for. Um, First is lobbying. Second is campaign spending. Third is serving on and putting shills on regulatory panels. Number four, creating astroturf groups. Number five is working in collaboration with the news media. Number six is creating alliances with labor unions. Number seven is contributing to nonprofit organizations. And number eight is sponsoring award ceremonies, including those for legislators and journalists. The oil industry is very sophisticated. They are the most sophisticated lobbyists in the world. I understand, Dan, they just had some sort of award ceremony that was, that was pretty, pretty much dipped in oil. Yeah, yeah, there was a, a award a ceremony for, for journalists in Sacramento, and uh, the Western States Petroleum Association was one of the sponsors. And one thing I found over the years is that Western States Petroleum Association, they can talk green energy and about John Muir better than any environmentalist can. They have skilled professionals right. that, that are able to greenwash their image. Everything they talk about is about diversity and paving the way to a sustainable future. Right. It, it sounds good to listen to it. Just when it comes to practical actions, it's, all, it's absent. Right. I'm going to go out on a limb, too, and suggest that um, they didn't give you an award. No, they didn't give me an award because I'm one of the last journalists in the state that covers what I call deep regulatory capture in Sacramento. Right. 
and most journalists are going to only talk about uh, one, two, or maybe three ways that the oil industry wields their power, and it's much more sophisticated than that. These guys, they hire the best lobbyists for high salaries. You know, they got all the money they can to spend on this, and um, it's also duplicated in big ag and big pharma and big money interests in, in general. Let's talk a little bit about that. We've mentioned on the show before when we talked to you about how the oil industry is not detached from farming, corporate yes. farming in California, and the water that supplies those corporate farms. Can you, can you refresh us a little bit on how that works? Okay, well, in a nutshell, big ag, just like big oil, exerts enormous influence over the regulators. And, in fact, Stewart and Linda Resnick are among the biggest contributors to Governor Gavin Newsom, and they sponsored his anti-recall campaign. They were listed in a fundraising letter for other donors as hosts of Newsom's campaign. And a couple years ago, they gave a $750 million donation to Caltech, and they just started breaking ground on that. I think you posted a picture on, on somewhere on, on social media of, of Gavin Newsom with a shovel and the, the Resnicks with shovels digging in the ground. And... Right, along with the mayor of Pasadena <laughs> and, and other prominent officials. And the bottom line is, when you contribute this type of money, this is one of the examples that, that the oil industry does. They contribute to nonprofits, including universities. And with both Newsom getting big money, $250,000 for the anti-recall campaign alone, and contributing all this money to Caltech, and giving to all sorts of legislators and other politicians, do you think that Newsom is going to do anything that's against the wishes of, of Stuart <laughs> Resnick? No, I would think not. We should also point out for our listeners who have never heard of Mr. Resnick that Although, in theory, he's California's, I, I guess you say, maybe our largest farmer or certainly one of our largest quote-unquote farmers, his experience comes from running a hedge fund. <laughs> yes. He lives in Beverly Hills with his wife, Linda, and Lyndon Stewart Resnick, they own the Wonderful Company, and they are the largest uh, fruit growers in the world. In the world? Wow. Now, they're not the biggest ag interests in the world, I think that's Bill Gates now. They're the biggest growers in California, the biggest in the United States, and the biggest growers of nut crops in the world. Let, let me ask you this. this. I don't know if you know the answer to this, but I understand as of not that long ago, the number one or certainly near the top of California quote-unquote farmers was the Chevron Corporation. Yeah. And the Chevron, they sold to others, and so that's been broken up. Oh, I see. Yeah. And so they're not into farming anymore. They're into basically spending all their money on lobbying to do more drilling in California. You won't see this in many media. Newsom got into office nearly 11,000 oil and gas wells, including new and reworked wells, have been approved in California. That's, that's 11,000 permits 
have been approved by the oil, gas, and regulators under Gavin Newsom. California prides itself on being green and progressive, but it isn't. And I will argue with anybody, any time and place, I completely contest that image. And there's a lot of other states that have a lot better environmental policies, including New York, Massachusetts, and Vermont. They, they actually have much greener energy policies in this place. This place is like kind of, in many ways, the most backward of states, at least on oil drilling, because it and Alaska are the only states that currently don't have any health and safety setbacks between oil and gas wells and people's houses and uh, hospitals, child care centers, health clinics. Um, in California, unlike the rest of the states that drill in the Union, including um, North Dakota and Maryland, Pennsylvania, Colorado, and even Texas, they have minimum setbacks. So Texas is ahead of California in this particular area. Oh, God, yeah. Yikes. I think it's Dallas, Texas. They have 1,500-foot setbacks. So until Colorado put even greater setbacks between homes and oil wells, Dallas was leading the charge in creating health and safety setbacks. California is behind a lot of other states in, in its uh, environmental policies. And anybody that covered fish and water issues for years like myself realizes that. Well, Dan, we'll see what happens. I want you to come back uh, in a couple of months to talk about this exact same issue, how things are progressing in Sacramento on the legislative agenda. Yes, and I really hope that this bill gets through the California legislature because that would be monumental. Okay. All right. Well, we want to talk to you about fish. Also, we don't have time today, but we'll bring you back soon to do that as well. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Get up. All right, it turns out we've got a few minutes to work with, so what I wanted to do was uh, find the intersection between this program and the PBS Frontline documentary, which in this case would be that both talked to Christine Todd Whitman. She was the head of the EPA, the first head of the EPA under Bush Cheney, and wound up getting hung out to dry. I misspoke in, in the first segment in saying that uh, she was going to go uh, note that the administration was in favor of a carbon tax. I, it was actually, the, she was okayed to talk about the fact they were going to put caps on carbon, which isn't exactly the same thing. Anyway, we asked her about the incident. This is from our chat in 2006. It's My Party Too is subtitled The Battle for the Heart of the GOP and the Future of America. You were in the Bush cabinet as head of the EPA for over two years. You were uh, dismayed, we read, to fight some losing battles related to global warming, which was and is denied by many in Congress and some in the administration. C can we talk about some of that? Uh, the biggest frustration probably was that, in fact, this administration has a, a better environmental record than anyone would know because everything that was done was done through the prism of what the political base would want, would want to hear, how they'd want to hear it, what they wanted to see. So the good things that involved some progress on the environment were usually not talked about at all because the base didn't, this wasn't a major issue for them and it tended to lead to government regulation, which they absolutely hated. And that hurt, I believe, the president and being able to reach out to moderates in the Republican Party for his reelection, and it hurt us internationally. And when you consider that 
This president won re-election by the smallest plurality of any incumbent ever returned to office, incumbent president ever returned to office. It showed you that that wasn't a mandate to take the country hard in one direction, and I believe it's also reflective of the fact that the concentration in those four years had been solely on the evangelical community and not on the broader electorate. There's an episode in the book I wanted to, to talk about. Um, you went to Trieste as head of the EPA, met with some G8 representatives, uh, talked about the administration, how it was going to put caps on CO2 emissions, as pledged in the campaign. But under heavy, heavy political pressure, the president reversed his position on that and pretty much left you hanging. Yeah, and it was something that I understood. Uh, the president had called for that cap on carbon, and I had certainly vetted those remarks or that position with the White House before I went over there. And everybody said, fine, they were in accord with that. The problem came when, in getting into office, if you remember back then, California was having the energy crisis. There were blackouts and brownouts. There was real concern that this could happen across the country. Coal is better than 50% of our power source, and people felt that if the president were to come out with a hard cap on carbon at that point in time, it would shift the utilities away from continuing a reliance on coal more toward the importation of foreign oil, which is not something anybody wanted, and more exploration of domestic sites, again, which nobody was particularly anxious to see. And I could understand why it changed. The problem was that in the change, it went further than Chuck Hagel is the one who had actually written a letter to the president uh, asking for a clarification of his position. It went further than even he had anticipated, again, with an eye toward the base and showing the base that the president was strong. Don't misunderstand him, that this was a problem. He apologized to me for it, but uh, I could understand what happened. Well, I was somewhat angered to read uh, how, in the wake of all that, Robert Novak blamed you, he said, for falsely oh, yeah. representing oh, yeah. the administration's position. Yeah, he, he did, and it was interesting, because I went to Andy Card, because he wrote a couple of columns that uh, went after me, and I said, look, uh, this isn't helping anybody. And while it was clear that Andy had nothing to do with it, after I'd had that conversation, those columns stopped. The, uh, the Chuck Hagel that uh, Christine Todd Whitman mentions was at that time a senator from Nebraska. He was a Republican conservative and uh, was pretty much towing the Bush-Cheney line on the environment, which by that point was that uh, we need to quit fooling around with this nonsense. In the PBS documentary, Chuck Hagel comes forward to say, yeah, I was lied to, adding that if he'd known the truth, he would have adopted a different position back then. In the course of the power of big oil, uh, a lot of people come forward, people that were in public relations, people that were scientists, uh, people that were towing the line that uh, was put forth by the industry that um, global warming is not the important issue. Some claimed it to be. And they expressed a great deal of outrage about, well, in some cases, the fact that, well, you know, I hired on to do this. That was my job. That's what I did. I did it well. But damn, what legacy am I leading for my children? I feel terrible. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that is the thrust of, of numerous uh, people who come forward in the documentary. And an awful lot of them appear to feel really bad about the fact that, well, they, they, were, they were just duped. A guy from the Cato Institute, which is, a, um, well, which is purportedly a, a libertarian think tank, uh, but in fact is a, a, uh, an entity, an institution underwritten to no small degree by the Koch brothers, he sort of explains why he said what he said when he said it back in the day and how these days, well, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't say exactly those same things now that the science is clearer. 
Anyway, I think I'm going to watch it again and come back with a more detailed book report as to what you may see. Not that I want to relieve you, dear listener, of the responsibility of um, checking it out yourself. That, I think, is something you ought to do and need to do. Anywhere, dear listener, we strongly suggest that you check out this documentary. You don't have to, of course. (laughs) We're not telling you what you have to do, but consider it a strong suggestion. I, I, do, I do note with some degree of satisfaction when there was all this hype about how we were going to be saved by um, natural gas, we weren't buying into it. I remember speaking to someone who used to talk to us on environmental issues, uh, Whitney Lehman, who's still around. We may want to bring Whit back on the show at some point. And when, when the subject of natural gas came up, <laughs> he just said, that's not the answer. And I think something else is not going to turn out to be the answer or at least a major part of the answer is a little item in, uh, in New Scientist last week on direct air capture of CO2. There's a lot of talk about how we could take the CO2 out of the air and put it into minerals that we could bury in the soil, and that's, that's in principle a great idea. The magazine notes that the direct air capture of CO2 costs about 600 pounds or more per ton, which is, I guess, what, 800 bucks? And, uh, and all the world's facilities doing this to date have only captured 260 million tons of CO2, which is less than what the UK emits in one year. It's something, but it ain't going to ride to the rescue. And there is a possibility that yours truly will be visiting the Caribbean in the next couple months. If so, I will report back to you on what's happening with uh, the Sargassum down in the Caribbean. The Sargasso Sea, of course, is a large area of, of, of seaweed that grows in the more tropical areas of the Atlantic. And apparently, thanks to global warming, large chunks of sargassum have busted off of the greater sea and have drifted onto the eastern-facing beaches of the islands of the Caribbean, and it's causing a big, big problem. When they scoop it off the beaches, it takes a lot of sand with it. It's also got a lot of salt in it. Can't really use it for fertilizer. It uh, stinks pretty bad, and it's just not something you want on your beach or really anywhere else on the island. Another documentary I took a look at, well, actually, it was a a YouTube video that I stumbled into. It talked about the story of Thomas Midgley, a man we have discussed on this program, a man who's been reckoned by many scientists as the human being, the single human being that had the greatest effect on the Earth's atmosphere of anyone in history. Midgley was a, a chemist who was tasked first with stopping cars from knocking and later finding a refrigerant that was safe. His solutions, respectively, were tetraethyl lead as an additive to gasoline and Freon, the first chlorofluorocarbon. Both of these compounds brought problems with them. One aspect in the video that I thought was sort of interesting was that they were experimenting to find something that would stop engine knock, which developed with higher compression engines. Certain chemicals used as fuel would spontaneously ignite. Now, one thing that does this pretty well is diesel fuel. You don't need a spark plug to ignite diesel. Automobile engines, however, are a different story. One of the compounds that worked to curtail engine knocking was ethyl alcohol. But ethyl alcohol was required in concentrations up to about 10% of the fuel, and it was going to be very expensive. When they discovered instead that tetraethyl lead in concentrations of one part per thousand or less also accomplished the same thing and was dirt cheap, the automobile industry and petroleum industry embraced it. In fact, they, they developed a company called Ethel, 
which deliberately confused the fact that it wasn't ethyl alcohol they were using, it was tetraethyl lead. On a relative scale of toxicity, well, there's no comparison. You can drink ethyl alcohol, in fact, most of you do. But in even tiny quantities, lead will cause brain damage, reduction in IQ, and lead poisoning. The video referred back to Ben Franklin, who back in the 1700s took a look at how toxic lead was. Said Ben Franklin, referring to lead as a poison, you would observe with concern how long a useful truth may be known to exist before it is generally received and acted upon. It took them a long, long time to remove lead from fuel. And when it comes to CO2 in the atmosphere, you would have to say Ben Flanken would also have aptly noted that you would observe with concern how long a useful truth may be known to exist before it is generally received and acted upon. Anyway, there's so much more we could say, but we are out of time. And we must act upon that by closing down the program. Thanks to Dan Bacher. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax, and we'll see you next week.